0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. June 2nd, 1983. Air Canada 797 is on fire. None of the 46 people on board can see the flames, but the smoke is so thick and overwhelming that all the passengers have been moved to the front of the plane, and the pilots are having trouble even seeing their instruments. The plane manages to land, but once on the ground, the fire flashes over and ignites, filling the cabin with flames. What was the source of the fire? And what was the fate of all the people on board? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down, your uh, your favorite podcast, I'm sure. It's Gus and Chris Hello. From, the, from the cockpit on our flight path to entertainment. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. I'm ready to listen to some horrible stories. Uh, yeah, this is a, this is actually an incident that's been on our list for a long time and it's been something that's frequently been requested from a lot of our listeners. This is a, okay. This is a really influential incident uh, that changed a lot uh, when it comes to aviation. It's crazy to think that it happened in 1983, which seems you know, I mean that was what 37 years ago, but still yeah, almost. 40 seems, years. Yeah, relatively recent in terms of um, the changes that were implemented as a result of this flight. Before we get into the meat of it, I want to remind everyone to go ahead and follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod on Twitter and Instagram. We'll post uh, images of this plane, uh, what was left of it after the fire. Uh, You'll see uh, in vivid detail what we're talking about. So setting the stage a little bit, you know, the, mm-hmm. the intro we read there is dramatic. There's a plane on fire, but no one can see the flames. But they know it's on fire because it's the smoke and... and yeah, there's there's a ton of heat. There's smoke everywhere. Like I said, the pilots are having trouble seeing the instruments in front of them because the smoke is so thick everywhere. So this was a uh, a passenger flight, obviously, from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport to uh, Montreal. And they were supposed to do a stopover in Toronto back, like I said, June 2nd, 1983. At the controls was Captain Donald Cameron, who was 51 years old, and he'd been with Air Canada since 1966. And he had about 13,000 flight hours. And there was First Officer Claude we met, who was 34 years old. He'd been with the airline since 1973 and had about uh, a little over 5,600 flight hours. And the aircraft they were flying was a McDonnell Douglas DC-9 that had been with the airline since 1966 and had just shy of 37,000 hours on it. So two experienced crew members, Mm, slightly older plane. I mean, mm-hmm. how old is it at this point? Uh, 17 About years 17 old? 17 years, yeah. Yeah. And uh, 36,000 hours. So, no, no, again, not bleeding edge technology, but, you know, we'll say it's tried and true, tested at, <laughs> at this <laughs> that's point. That's a good way of putting, uh, of labeling something old. It, yeah, it's like when a realtor's <laughs> trying to sell you a house that's small, they say it's cozy, or yeah. if it's got a lot of problems, they say it's a fixer-upper. We'll say, this was tried and true. It was it's a tested. good investment property. It's good. <laughs> Yeah. It's a solid plane. Uh, yeah. So, At about 4.25 p.m. Central Time, uh, Flight 797 took off from Dallas with five crew and 41 passengers on board. So it was not a very full plane, you know, a little less than half full. Mm -hmm. And they climbed to their cruising altitude of 33,000 feet. At 6.51 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, which is 5.51 Central Time, so like an hour and a half after takeoff. Okay. It's a long flight, too. It's like, what, six hours? Well, they're going Dallas to Toronto. I think Austin to Toronto is about three and a half or four hours, oh. so it's probably something comparable. Okay, so they're like halfway through it. Yeah, a little less than halfway through, we'll say. So at about, uh, we'll say 5.51 Central Time, the three circuit breakers for the aft laboratory's flush motor suddenly tripped. Captain Cameron made one attempt to reset them, but it was unsuccessful. And the captain assumed that the flush motor had probably just seized up. And so he left it alone for a little while. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what I read was like in his mind, it was right after mealtime. He thought maybe a lot of people were using the lavatory and maybe just the motor became overwhelmed. Oh. In his mind, he's like, you know, I'll just let it sit for a bit. And then I'll try to reset it again in a few minutes. So the toilets just weren't working. Right. So the motor that uh, works in the flush. So when you use your toilet at home, there's no motor or anything. It's like it's all gravity. Uh, But when you're on... Uh, a plane they have to have a motor that um uh, oh, the that one that break, sucks that in- the <laughs> force. exactly that yep. thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the, okay the <laughs> part wasn't working okay. um <laughs> uh, so he left it alone for eight minutes eight minutes later he tries to reset those circuit breakers again but still unsuccessful he tells the first officer it pops as i push it so he's trying yeah. to like push them in to reset it but they're just like popping back out they won't stick at 7 p.m uh Eastern time, (laughs) sorry, the the flight has moved out of central time to eastern time, so that's why the times change. So we'll say about nine minutes after the circuit breaker's first pop, the passenger seated in the last row of the plane asked a flight attendant to identify a strange odor. And the number three flight attendant thought the odor was coming from that aft lavatory. So uh, she took a fire extinguisher from the cabin wall and opened the door to the lavatory a few inches. She found that a light gray smoke had filled the lavatory from floor to ceiling, but she didn't see any flames. She closed the door and saw the number two flight attendant nearby, and she told the number two flight attendant to inform the lead flight attendant about the situation. That there's smoke in the toilet. Right. There's smoke but no fire. And it's important to remind people, at this point in 1983, smoking is still allowed on flights. Oh. Right. So it's like, it's not an immediate red flag. It's... Maybe someone was smoking in here? Yeah. Maybe someone tossed a cigarette in the trash bin? Because in my head, it's like, oh, there's smoke on a plane. You run and go tell the captain, or you
1: know? Right.
0: But it's not super unusual at this
1: point. Yeah. That's so weird to think about.
0: But yeah. Right. I I feel like that's an important bit of context. Nowadays, you're like, oh, my God, something's (laughs) terribly wrong. Back then, it's like, maybe someone was smoking. Uh, So the number two flight attendant goes to the lead flight attendant and says, there's a fire in the lavatory. When the lead flight attendant hears this, he told the number two to inform the captain and then he goes to assist the number three flight attendant in moving the passengers forward and to open eyebrow air vents over the passenger seats to direct air to the rear of the cabin. The lead flight attendant then took a fire extinguisher and opened the laboratory door about three quarters of the way open. And he, again, he sees no flames, but he finds thick black smoke coming out of the seams of the walls behind the mirror and the ceiling. So he sprays oh. all the paneling down with the fire extinguisher. You know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's smart. That's right. preventative. To, yeah. So, you know, he just covers it. He sprays everywhere in there with the, the fire extinguisher and closes the door. Uh, a couple of minutes later, about two minutes later, the number two flight attendant informs the captain that there's a fire in the lavatory and that the other flight attendants have gone back to put it out. When Captain Cameron hears this, he instructs first officer we met to go check it out and inspect the lavatory. So, you know, captains flying the plane and he says, tells the first officer, go take a look at it. Let me know what you see. Uh, just to be safe, Cameron puts on his oxygen mask. Smart. Yeah. He's like, just being safe, right? Yeah. Like, we don't know what's smoke. going on. Yeah. yeah. So first officer, Weemit, leaves the cockpit without smoke goggles or any portable oxygen. He just walks out to go the to see what's does? going on. The first officer. Oh, wait. I thought you said he just put on... No, the captain puts on his oxygen mask oh, and tells okay. the first officer to go check on uh, what's going on back in the lavatory. Oh. So the first officer leaves the cockpit. Like I said, no smoke goggles, no portable oxygen, just walking out there. Uh, but the NTSB report notes that this plane was not equipped with a self-contained breathing equipment or full-face smoke mask because there was no requirement to have them on board. Oh, but just some simple goggles on board. Hmm. Uh, we met could not make it to the aft lavatory because the smoke was so thick and it you know it poured out over the last few rows of the plane. Uh, so he tries to go back to check on the lavatory. But the smoke is just so thick, he can't get back there. Damn. So, okay, at this point, it's really bad. Right. Before, they were a little concerned. Now, there's definitely alarms and cause for concern. The lead flight attendant tells First Officer We met what he saw and that he had discharged the extinguisher, but that he did not see the source of the smoke and he did not think that there was a fire in the trash container. Uh, And then We met says he's going to go back to the cockpit to get goggles. And when We met makes it back to the cockpit, he tells the captain about the smoke and advises that they should probably land. But he did not tell him that there was no fire in the trash bin. Because again, you know, since smoking was allowed, that they would think maybe it's a small contained fire in the trash bin from a cigarette. But the first officer does not tell the captain that that is not the case here. Okay, so he didn't clarify like this might be worse than just a little fire. Right. So before uh, Captain Cameron could respond, the lead flight attendant comes into the cockpit and tells the captain that the passengers have been moved forward in the plane and that there was no need to worry because the smoke was easing up. So we This who's the first officer, looks back and he notices that the smoke had almost all cleared up. It was almost all gone at this point. Captain Cameron uh, gives first officer a pair of goggles since, you know, it was easier for him to do that than have the first officer climb over his seat and locate his own. So the first officer with the goggles now goes back to the rear lavatory to investigate again. As we met, leaves the cockpit, the lead flight attendant tells Cameron again that the smoke was clearing up and he replied by saying he believed the fire was in the trash bin. Oh, yeah. Cameron did not decide to descend at this time because he expected the fire to be put out. So, you know, everyone gets worried. There's a lot of smoke, but then the smoke goes away. No one's told the captain that there's no fire in the trash bin. The captain's assuming it was probably just a small fire in the trash bin. It's probably out now. Someone put a cigarette out in the trash and it caught fire. But it's gone. I mean, it makes sense to think that in this context. Right. But they knew at this point there was no fire in the trash bin, but no one had told the captain that that was the case. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I know it's a little confusing trying to repeat it a few times just to, you know, make sure it sinks in. So when we met was away from the cockpit, the airplane started to experience a series of electrical malfunctions. The master caution light illuminated, indicating that the airplane's left AC and DC electrical systems had lost power. The captain at this point calls Indianapolis Center, requesting them to stand by because the flight was experiencing an electrical problem. About 30 to 45 seconds later, the controller working lost the flight's radar beacon target, and the controller then directed the computer to track all primary targets, and the flight's position was then depicted as a plus sign on the radar scope. Meanwhile, first officer we met was at the AF lavatory, and he goes to open the door, right? He's going to mm-hmm. open it up and take a look in there. But when he touched the door, he found that the door was hot to the touch, and he decided Uh-oh. not to open it. Right, things are getting worse. He then told the flight attendants to leave it closed as well. You know, you don't want to open it up and increase uh, airflow in there. Uh Uh-huh. So he hurries back to the cockpit and tells the captain uh, that he did not like the situation and that they should land immediately. Oh, finally. Right. Yeah, it's taken quite a bit of time here. The captain believed that the fire was out of control and decided it would be best to start descending. And at this point, the master warning light was illuminated and there were more lights indicating that the emergency AC and DC electrical buses had lost power and both of the pilot's attitude directional indicators tumbled. So they're losing electrical power, and their instruments are going offline at this point. And the captain orders the first officer to activate the emergency AC and DC buses. So their electrical power is going out, and the captain's telling the first officer to activate the backup emergency electrical systems. Things are becoming a little more difficult for them at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, The flight contacted Indianapolis Center, you know, and they declared mayday and said that the flight had a fire and that they were going down. Air traffic control told them they were about 25 nautical miles from Cincinnati and asked them if they could make it there. Uh, The crew responded by saying that they could, and they were cleared to descend to 5,000 feet. The crew asked air traffic control for vectors towards Cincinnati and that they changed the transponder code to 7,700, showing that there was an emergency. Yeah. However, uh, the transponder was not operating due to power loss, and the emergency code never showed up on radar screens, and air traffic control could not tell how fast the plane was descending Or even if it was descending. They didn't know that they were coming. They just said, Can you get to Cincinnati? And then they didn't respond. They didn't see their response. They did hear that they responded via radio, but at this point, uh, the transponder stops working on the plane. So on their air traffic control radar, they can't see the plane's altitude, how fast it's descending. Like we've talked about the transponder a couple of times. It's like it's what's transmitting all of the airplane's information for air traffic control to see, but that's offline now. Okay. So the controller started the process of handing the plane off to the Cincinnati airport controllers. And Cincinnati Approach confirmed that, you know, he saw the flight on his radar screens. However, this controller was mistaken. He was looking at the beacon for a completely different flight. Oh. Yeah, you know, little problems starting to add up. I feel like that's a recurring theme in a lot of these episodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Little problems that make another problem worse. Yeah. So the Cincinnati airport was made aware that a flight was coming in with a fire on board. At 7.10, which is 19 minutes after the circuit breaker first popped. With the toilet? Right. Okay. Remember I said that he turned around yeah. and he tried to reset the circuit yeah. breakers? So at this point, we're 19 minutes after that happened. Flight 797 contacted Cincinnati Approach, saying they were descending with an emergency. The controller told the flight to plan for an ILS approach on runway 36 and requested a turn to a heading of uh, 090 degrees. So the target that this controller was looking at didn't respond to his request, because remember, he was looking at um, the wrong flight. Oh. He attempted to assign the flight with a new transponder code, but that didn't do anything because the transponder's not working on uh, the Air Canada flight. So they're monitoring a different flight right now. Right. They, they're telling the flight what to do, but they're looking at the wrong plane on their radar. Oh, no. The controller then noticed a target on his radar screen moving east, and he began watching that. And he realized that this was flight 797. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. So (laughs) it takes him a bit, but he realizes, oh, that's the actual flight there. We got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you, you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod and you say, sure. You never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest, and when I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean that. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator for the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which, you know, is both useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. He's also got a recent episode here with Chris Hadfield, who's a retired astronaut. Uh, spent time, obviously, in space, as astronauts do. And also another episode with Danny Trejo, who uh, you probably recognize as uh, an actor. Uh, been in many different movies. Really, really interesting insights uh, from both of them. I think uh, you all would probably love it. Uh, Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests, and we're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. If that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. We really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Most workouts are not that exciting, but there really is nothing more exciting and engaging than learning boxing and kickboxing, and that's exactly why people are saying that Fight Camp is one of the only workouts that they've stuck with. Fight Camp provides boxing and kickboxing workouts and tutorials that'll keep you engaged, learning, excited, and motivated, a program that's never boring and always challenging. Fight Camp brings boxing gym into your living room with a tech twist. They provide all the gear, top trainers, and a new technology that tracks your punches, everything you need to get great workouts in. The boxing workout has always been ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape, and it's honestly one of the most fun ways to combine cardio and strength training. Basically, Fight Camp brings the boxing and kickboxing gym to you with fight-hardened trainers that combine cardio and conditioning in a full-body workout. It's made for absolute beginners to experienced boxers who want to box from home. Fight Camp is a great way to learn boxing and kickboxing while improving your fitness with authentic workouts, all while learning at your own pace from home. The six trainers make all the programming based on their experience training for fights and they offer a bunch of different ways to learn such as their 13 week long prospect plan where you're taught the punch number system, the stats, how to properly throw each punch and they don't just teach you the moves, you actually have to use them during intense 15 to 45 minute workouts that continue to remind you to pay attention to your form and that reinforces the technique you just learned to build your muscle memory. It comes with all the gear you need. Fight Camp comes with the best freestanding punching bag available, great quality boxing gloves, quick hand wraps, and unique punch tracking sensors that show you real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. And then once you have all the gear, you can choose from one of six trainers with real fight experience to lead you through 15, 30, or 45-minute workouts uh, structured like a boxing match, three minutes work, one minute of rest. Uh, You can learn a new skill and continuously get better. No other workout can boast the depth of skill and the techniques discovered while learning the sport of boxing and kickboxing. Like any martial art, Fight Camp offers a lifelong journey of learning and improving. The Fight Camp app comes with over 600 workouts and tutorials for beginners, intermediate, and advanced boxers and kickboxers. They're releasing 12 new workouts every week. Fight Camp offers flexible financing for as low as 0% APR and $0 down. And right now is a limited time holiday offer. Get free shipping and a gift valued up to $109 with every Fight Camp package. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. That's right. Get free shipping and a gift valued up to $109 when you purchase. Bring an authentic boxing and kickboxing gym to your home with Fight Camp. To get your free gift, just go to joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. joinfightcamp.com slash blackboxdown. The crew had reported their altitude at 8,000 feet, and the controller realized that they were too high uh, and they would uh, be too fast to land on runway 36, so he told them to land on runway 27 left instead. So as the plane descended, smoke began moving forward and started filling the cockpit. Both pilots put on their goggles and oxygen masks. During the later stages of the approach, they started having trouble seeing their instruments due to the smoke. The flight attendants, oh. like I said, had moved everyone to be forward of row 13. So they're trying to get everyone as far away from that lavatory and the source of the smoke as possible. If the captains are having a hard time at the front of the plane with goggles, all the passengers have to be like choking on smoke d- during all this, right? I mean, Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's got to be really bad uh, in, the, in the cabin at this point. So the passengers were briefed on the emergency evacuation procedures and designated passengers to open the overwing exits and brief them on how to open them. So that seems like normal, right? You know, they're going to do an emergency landing. And so they're briefing the passengers on what to do. Uh, Interesting side note, at this point in time, there is no pre-flight safety instruction. Oh, right. So that's why they're having to give the passengers an emergency lesson on what they need to do. Whoa. Okay. That's crazy to think about. Now I'm seeing why this flight has changed so much. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to start connecting a lot of these dots here in a bit. But uh, uh, I, I feel like I need to mention that at this point. So, when the plane descended through 3,000 feet, the crew uh, depressurized it. The captain was able to utilize full flaps and landed the plane at 140 knots and deployed spoilers and applied full brakes. Uh, because of the loss of electrical power, the anti-skid system was inoperable and the four main tires blew out. The plane came to a stop on the runway near Taxiway Juliet. And the taxiways are just like... We, I always say they're like the off-ramps. Okay. Uh, the pilots completed their emergency engine shutdown checklist and then went to assist the passengers in getting out of the plane. They landed safely, just some flat tires. Right, four flat tires. So they're going to try to get people out of the plane now. Uh, however, the pilots could not make it through the cabin due to the smoke and the heat. So they actually had to exit the plane through their cockpit sliding windows. Oh. The two Ford cabin doors, uh, the left forward wing door, and the two right side over wing doors were all opened. The three flight attendants and 18 passengers were able to evacuate, but then suddenly, the cabin interior burst into flames. Oh, my God. The remaining 23 passengers on board were all killed in the fire. Oh, no. Uh, no one who was on board witnessed flames inside the cabin while they were still inside the plane. But the fuselage and cabin were destroyed by the time emergency crews put out the fire. So half the people got out, and then it just burst into flames and everyone died? Right. The people who were still on the plane who had managed to get out all perished in the in the flames. Oh, my God. And uh, the plane was written off as damaged beyond repair. So, I mean, that's crazy. There's a fire. No one sees it. Imagine if that was you, right? If you were on the plane. There's a fire. No one sees it. You land. You're like, oh, my God. Thank God we landed. You get out of the plane. You know, you exit Uh and you're like, we're safe. And you turn back and you look at it and it bursts into flame. Like it sounds like it like almost
1: exploded into flames because if, if no one was able to escape after that point, it must have been
0: pretty fierce. Right. It just became engulfed all of a sudden with fire. So, I mean, what happened, right? I mean, that's the ultimate question in uh, in all of these incidents and all of these episodes that we do. The NTSB discovered that this plane had actually had a previous accident. In 1979, which was four years before this, the plane had suffered a rapid depressurization in the tail section. And the plane suffered serious damage to some engine and flight control components. The only electrical damage that was done was some severed flight data recorder connections. Uh, however, during the repairs, many of the wires were cut... So the plane could be properly examined and repaired, and the wires were then spliced back together, and the airplane returned to service a few months later. When investigating Flight 797, the NTSB found that a number of wires in the aft lavatory section were found with insulation stripped away. But they could not determine if this insulation damage caused the fire or was caused by the fire. Uh. When the NTSB was listening to the cockpit voice recorder recordings, they heard the sound of electrical arcs, you know, like that buzzing you hear with electricity. Like,
1: auditorily picked up or it it somehow, like, transmitted through the recording, if that makes sense?
0: Well, the pilot said they didn't hear the sound of any arcing. Uh Uh-huh. And so the NTSB thinks that it would have been inaudible to flight crew. Okay. So, I mean, it's not like it's a sign that they missed. It just would have been inaudible to them, but it was on the recordings. Okay. Um, The NTSB could not find any more evidence of arcing or short circuits, though. The procedures for Air Canada flight attendants during a fire emergency say that flight attendants are supposed to secure the nearest appropriate fire extinguisher and immediately attack the fire and to simultaneously inform the captain and maintain a continuous communication with the captain. So these things were done by the flight attendants but the procedures also expressed the need to use a fire axe to destroy panels in order to locate the fire if required. Uh, The lead flight attendant testified that he had been taught how to use the fire axe during initial training but that he was not taught which lavatory panels could be removed or destroyed without endangering critical airplane components. That's understandable. If I was on a plane, I wouldn't just take an axe to it without knowing what I was axing. Right. But I mean, the training says that he's supposed to do it, but he said that he was never taught where he could hit. In my head, it's like I've also never been trained to wield an axe on a plane, so I don't know. Right. (laughs) So he also said that it was obvious the fire was behind the panels, but he would have had to destroy the whole area of the paneling to get to the fire. Also, although the procedures do not indicate that the use of fire axe must be authorized by a captain, the fire axe was stowed behind the captain's seat, and he said there would have been no way for him to go grab it without the captain knowing. So, flight attendants designated several male passengers to open overwing exit windows. Uh, None of those designated could recall whether the attendant had given them specific instructions on how to open the exits but nearby passengers were called hearing a flight attendant describing how they operated. Three of the four overwing exits were open, and the passengers who opened them encountered no difficulties in opening and removing the windows. So, okay, I'm going to break down a few of the NTSB uh, findings here. The fire burned for 15 minutes before the smoke was first noticed. What? Yeah. So it had been smoldering behind the panels for a long time before they realized it. And then, like I said, it took them another 19 minutes to even start descending. Yeah. So that fire was just burning for like almost, I mean, like 45 minutes. Probably for half an hour or so,
1: I'd estimate. Well, I was thinking like by the time it actually, they landed and it really burst up. Like it was
0: like going for really, yeah. Yeah. It had been going for quite a while. The first evidence of malfunction was the tripping of the three circuit breakers. The flight crew did not consider this to be a serious problem. Again, it happens. Like I said, it was right after a meal service. The captain thought maybe the motor was just being overworked because a lot of people were using the lavatory. Mm -hmm. The source of the smoke was never identified, and the captain was never told nor inquired about the location and the extent of the fire. So that's just kind of a communication problem. The captain doesn't probe about it, and nobody goes out of their way to tell him more details about the fire they're just kind of speaking generally there is a fire not Mm -hmm. hey this is a serious problem it's behind the walls crew member reports that the fire was abating misled the captain about the severity of the fire and he delayed his decision to declare an emergency and descend again the captain was getting mixed signals here He knows that there's a fire, but then it's like, oh, well, the smoke's dissipating. Maybe it's not so bad, but nobody told him it's behind the panels in the walls of the plane, Mm -hmm. which, you know, would have probably alerted him. It's a lot more serious than he thinks. Yeah. Because of the delayed decision to descend, the airplane lost the opportunity to be landed at Louisville. Had the airplane landed at Louisville, it could have landed three to five minutes earlier and the delayed decision contributed to the severity of the accident. Yeah. Yeah. Three of the four overwing exit windows were opened by designated passengers who had been selected and briefed to open them by the flight attendants. A flash fire occurred within the cabin 60 to 90 seconds after the doors and exits were opened. Do you think it's extra oxygen? Exactly. All the oxygen came in because the doors are open now and gave more oxygen for the fire to increase in intensity. And it just basically exploded at that point. Uh Flames from this fire were not evident until after the survivors had left the airplane. Flames from the original fire were never evident within the airplane or to persons on the ground. So, like you said, I mean, they got on the ground. They had to evacuate the plane. Mm -hmm. But all that extra oxygen just made the, the fire way more intense. The last point was this was a survivable accident. In August of 1984, the NTSB released the probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable causes of the accident were a fire of undetermined origin, the flight crew's underestimation of the fire severity, and conflicting fire progress information given to the captain. This report also found that the flight crew's delayed decision to institute an emergency descent contributed to the severity of the accident. So, uh, some miscommunication, some bad information, delayed decision-making because of that, Mm -hmm. made everything worse. When this statement was released, a number of commercial pilots and airline personnel petitioned for the NTSB to make a revision. And we met also wrote the NTSB saying that they could not land at Louisville because they were too close to that airport and they would not have been able to safely descend quick enough to make it there. He even said that landing at Cincinnati was questionable to safety because controlling the plane had become difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't mention that earlier. The captain recounts talking about how difficult it was that I believe their horizontal stabilizer became partially stuck. And uh, any movement he made on the control column took about 45 pounds worth of effort. Uh, to move it around. So it was taking all of his strength and concentration to control and fly the plane because of all the electrical problems that they were having. Damn. In January of 1986, the NTSB issued a revised report, including We Met's explanation of the landing situation. The report still criticized Cameron for not inquiring about the fire, but they changed the probable cause to say that the information given to Cameron was misleading and not conflicting. They also removed the word delayed from the description of the pilot's decision to descend. Instead, they said time taken to evaluate the nature of the fire and to decide to initiate an emergency descent as a contributing factor so it made it a little less damning on the crew uh based on Mm -hmm. the situation that uh they had encountered specifically the captain it sounds like right because he was getting conflicting information he was just going off of what he was told Uh i mean it's tough right like in hindsight you can say yeah well of course he should have landed but who knows he was he wasn't getting all the information So the NTSB issued several recommendations to the FAA. And I'm going to go and read through a couple of them here. Expedited actions to require smoke detectors in lavatories. Imagine that. There were no smoke detectors in the lavatories at this time. That's wild. Yeah.
1: Especially since, well, I guess it's the idea that people like would go into a bathroom and smoke. was unnecessary because you could smoke in the plane. But still. Right. It seems like that's a really likely place for there to be a fire because people throw cigarettes out in the trash.
0: Exactly. Another one was a requirement of automatic fire extinguishers adjacent to and in lavatory waste receptacles. Again, seems smart. Like you said, if someone tosses a cigarette or if there's a fire in the the trash bin, why not have uh, an automatic fire extinguisher in there just to be safe? Mm -hmm. Strong recommendation that all U.S.-based air carriers review their fire training and evaluation procedures. Procedures were to be shortened and focused on taking aggressive actions to determine the source and severity of suspected cabin fires while finding the shortest and safest possible emergency descents, including landing or ditching. So again, just encouraging training to have crew be more aggressive when it comes to dealing with fire. Yeah, which makes sense. Strong suggestion that passenger instructions in how to open emergency exits become standard practice within the airline industry. So this incident is the reason that there are pre-flight safety briefings now this is why when you're on a plane you watch that video or you watch the flight attendant tell you how to you know open the window if you're if you're seated in an exit row that's why they come and they ask you Are you willing and able to, you know, open this window? Do you understand? Like, it's all because of this.
1: I guess were were airlines initially resistant to it because they didn't want to scare passengers or something?
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a possibility. Maybe they just thought it was unnecessary that the flight attendants could do it if it became necessary, Mm -hmm. you know, to do it. Uh, You're probably right. They probably didn't want to scare uh, people, which, I mean, (laughs) I, I wish that they would, you know, have told people at the time how to do it. So in addition to all of that that we just mentioned, there were also strong recommendations for expedited FAA rule changes mandating that all U.S.-based air carriers install in-cabin fire safety enhancements, including fire blocking seat materials to limit both the spread of fire and the generation of toxic chemicals through ignition. So just trying to make seats less prone to fire and not emit toxic chemicals when they are on fire. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, emergency track lighting at or near the floor strong enough to cut through heavy fuel fire smoke. So, you know, again, during the pre-flight safety briefings, they always point out the lights on the floor yeah. that guide you to an emergency exit. That didn't exist before this flight. Damn. Uh, so now, you know, if we have that because of this. You know, the, the like we kept talking about on this incident, the smoke was so thick, people couldn't see anything. You know, if, if you can't see, if you're crawling along on the floor, at least you have the lights there guiding you and letting you know if you're going, you know, toward the, right the next exit. Yeah. Raised markings on overhead bins indicating the location of exit rows to aid passengers in locating these rows in case of passenger visual impairment, uh, either by pre-existing causes or because of emergency conditions. So Mm -hmm. again, if you can't see, and if you're touching along the um, overhead bins, there's indicators there to let you know when you've reached an exit row. Yeah. Uh, And the last one I'm going to read here, uh, handheld fire extinguishers using advanced technology extinguishing agents. So just better fire extinguishers. I have a
1: question about They said it was preventable, but when they opened up the emergency exits, the fire basically got infinitely worse. They said it was survivable. Okay, yeah, sorry. But if it basically ignited rapidly after
0: opening the exits, how could everyone have gotten out? I think they said it was survivable because the thinking is if they were able to descend and land more quickly that they could have uh, potentially gotten out before the fire got worse. If the flight attendants had, you know, used the fire axe and opened up the panels and extinguished the fire while it was still in the air, it could have been survivable. And even once they landed the plane, if everyone had been able to evacuate more quickly, it could have been survivable. Okay. There's also nowadays, uh, it's not in the list that I read to you, but nowadays planes have to be proven that they can be evacuated in 90 seconds as well. Oh. So you want to make sure that you can get everyone off of a plane very quickly. Yeah, that is... That's quick. 90 seconds. I mean, that's why there's so many exits and exit slides. Like you want to make sure you can get everyone off as quickly as possible. So that way, if you are ever in this situation again, and there's a fire that's being fed more oxygen because the doors are open, everyone can get out before the flames erupt. Yeah.
1: And that's what we talked about this one other time. Uh, I think it's whenever we interviewed the man who was on the crash where people were grabbing their bags and stuff when they landed. It's like, no, no, no.
0: Just get off the plane. Right. Yeah. You don't. I mean, you never know with a fire, like, what's going to happen. You got to just get off. Yeah, forget the bag. Yeah, forget your bag. You can replace that stuff. So the aftermath of this, like I said, the the plane was pretty much written off. Uh, Air Canada actually sold the right wing of this plane to Ozark Airlines to repair a damaged plane. And uh, that plane was later sold to Republic Airlines, who was acquired by Northwest Airlines. And that plane was eventually scrapped in 2012 and uh, just sold off for parts. So the wing of this plane from 1966 made it all the way to 2012? Yeah. Damn. That's a long time. So uh, Air Canada still uses this flight number on flights from Montreal to Los Angeles. But, you know, nowadays they fly an Airbus A320. Um, The flight crew was honored by multiple Canadian aviation organizations for their heroic actions in landing the plane safely. Uh, Captain Cameron passed away eventually uh, from complications with Parkinson's disease on December third, 2016, in Ottawa, and he was 84 years old at the time. So he wasn't like he
1: he received recognition not. Was it chastised for his actions? I
0: I think, you know, initially the NTSB report was was kind of critical of him. Uh But, you know, after the petitions and people arguing with him, they revised their report. You know, they you know, they agree that he did everything that he could.
1: He did land the plane safely under bad conditions. So, right. Yeah.
0: You know, you can speculate. Maybe he could have inquired a little more about the fire, but he was just going based off of what people were telling him, you know. He obviously was dealing with a crisis situation and trying to juggle uh, a lot of things at the same time. Yeah. But uh, that's it. That's uh, Air Canada 797. It's a a very influential uh, incident. Like I said, a lot of the safety things we take for granted nowadays all came from this one incident. When did smoking get removed from planes? It's actually probably more recent than you think. It was in 1988, the U.S. banned smoking on domestic flights of less than two hours in duration. Okay. Then in February of 1990, they expanded it to domestic flights of less than six hours in duration, and then to all domestic and international flights in the year 2000. 2000? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's not that long ago. You
1: could smoke on a plane in 2000?
0: Yeah. I mean, it had, it had to have been an international flight or a domestic flight longer than six hours. But yeah, you could have. Whoa. I guess that's why, I mean, you still see the no smoking signs on planes. It's because that plane was probably still flying when people could smoke. That's so wild. I, it just seemed like something that like didn't happen. It seemed like
1: pre-80s. Yeah. No, no,
0: yeah. no. Um, you you could definitely smoke
1: on a plane. It could have smoked in my lifetime. Not that I was of age to smoke, but if I...
0: If you I, know what? I was of age. I could have smoked on a plane. I never did. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we should tell people if they enjoy this podcast to share it with a smoker. Is that, is that, is that our, our call to action Yeah, this sure, week? sure. Why not? Share it with someone who's old enough to have smoked on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it. Uh, Air Canada Flight 797. I want to thank everyone uh, for listening. And again, one last time, I want to remind you to follow us on social media at Down BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, leave us a rating or a review wherever you consume podcasts. Hopefully you enjoy it. And uh, share this podcast with someone who smokes. And if you want
1: to see more Black Box Down, we have a new series that me and Gus have been working on with Dennis, our producer, called Crash Simulator, where we recreate the flights uh, from Black Box Down in Microsoft Flight Simulator, and Gus tries to land them. Uh, it's available at for first members, which is kind of like our Patreon. So if you like
0: the show and want to support us, uh, please check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes. Thank you for reminding me, Chris. I also feel like I'd be doing a bad job if I didn't remind people that we also have uh, a t-shirt now. If you'd like to support us with uh, by uh, buying and wearing a t-shirt, you can also do that at store.roosterteeth.com. I think it's a pretty cool shirt. It is. So go go take a look. You can just search for Black Box Down and you'll find it. And uh, so go buy a shirt, go watch a video and uh, share our podcast. You can't tell right now because it's a podcast, but I'm wearing it. I've got two on. Ah.
1: I've sewn I've cut mine up and sewn them into pants Oh no
0: No. (laughs) So I'm wearing them everywhere Alright well I gotta go uh, find my sewing machine Thanks for listening everybody Bye